I want to talk today, oh, thank you, about uh, hope for our families. Um, we, we have spent a couple of uh, uh, sessions, excuse me, <coughs> I'm sorry, thank you. I promise you it's just the pollen. Uh, I sneezed at the table one day this week and the waitress would not even take my plate back. So uh, uh, I, know, I know that makes people nervous when you sneeze, but uh, uh, I, I promise you that's what it is. And, and uh, but just in case you don't believe me, I wouldn't come around me afterwards. But uh, no, I'm teasing. Um, families is um, is an area that has been under such attack, and the enemy has not only tried to destroy our families. That's what he does. The enemy comes to kill, to steal, and destroy. That's his job, and we shouldn't be surprised at the horrible things that come from the enemy. In regard to our families. <clears throat> but I, I also want you to know that God is in the process of restoring and helping, and it looks bleak in a lot of ways. But what we have to do is when we look at the situation that we're, uh, you know, with which we're dealing, we have to understand that the Lord himself is in the business of restoring families. Remember what he promised us in the book of Malachi. He said one of the signs of the uh, work of Messiah in the last days is that he would turn the hearts of the children back to their parents. And um, so God is doing something even though it's a real area of attack right now. I like what uh, President Reagan said uh, in 1988, uh, in his farewell address to the nation, um, well, I guess actually, I, I put 88, I guess it would have been 89 because it was just before he left office um, in, in January. But he said this, the best hope for our nation's survival and prosperity begins at the dinner table. Now, I was all on board with that. I thought that was good preaching. I grew up in a home, many of you did, that um, um, the, the, the business of life was conducted around the dinner table. Um, and I know what a challenge that can be uh, with four kids. Um, and, and as they get older, different schedules, it's more and more difficult to have a dinner together. And I'll be honest with you, with our kids, with our kids uh, grown and gone, unless we plan a family meal, and sometimes Ramon and I have to, you know, we're getting ready to go to bed and, you know, we, did we eat supper tonight? You know, that kind of thing. But uh, I, my, my fond, some of my fondest memories growing up, uh, every room in the house had special memories, but the big ones the special ones were always around the dinner table. Um, when I left home and had children of my own and we came back to, to visit Mama and Papa, um, it was the table. It was the table where problems were solved and, and the world was set right and faith was rekindled. And that's what Ronald Reagan was trying to say. He wasn't talking about the mechanics of eating a meal together, as, as special as that can be, but he was talking about what 
goes on at the dinner table for a whole several generations of Americans. Um, now, sometimes, as I said, it was very demanding. I know one time, I, I just, Ramona doesn't like me to mention it, she says, because it brings up trauma for her. But um, one time I remember that one of the kids spilled their drink and another child, in an attempt to move out of the way, spilled their drink. I saw the second drink going down. I reached for it, knocked over the third child's drink. And Ramona just looked at the table, so I just grabbed my glass and I just poured it out with the others. Uh, sometimes it's just like that. Sometimes it's just like that. She didn't think it was nearly as funny as the kids and I did. In fact, I didn't think anybody as, as you know, small as she is could make me clean up a mess, but she did. She did pretty well. But I'm saying the, the dinner table, President Reagan said, if we can get back to the, to the relationships that were cemented at the dinner table. And I think, I think we've lost that. I, I don't think that it's a sign of the end times that we don't eat a lot of meals together. But I think it's a tragic thing that what we lost by not eating meals together is, is irreplaceable. So I think I want to start at the dinner table tonight and let's, and let's back up. Robert Seligman, who is family professor at the University of Pennsylvania, or at least he was a few years ago, I assume he still is. Uh, and he's not, he's, as far as I know, he's not even a Christian. If he is, I don't know it. But I'm not getting this from a Christian source. He's used the terminology of the loss of commons, the loss of commons to describe what has decimated hope in America. He was talking about how hope in America is, is virtually gone. And this book, if I'm remembering correctly, was like six or eight years ago. And he said there are three things that have caused it. Now, this is a, a secular man, so far as I know, saying this. He says, we've lost hope, number one, because we've lost our sense of a transcendent God. Transcendent God means we've lost our sense of a God that rules over all. And even though there is bad and evil and rebellion, it's going to be set right one day. A transcendent God over all. He said, we've lost that sense. Number two, we have lost confidence in the integrity and ability of American government to lead us down the right path. That's why a couple of our new prayer goals have to do with our political leaders and our government. He said, we've lost confidence in, in government. And number three, he said, we have lost the structure of the traditional family. We've lost the structure of the traditional family. I think I would add to his words that there are three great assaults on the American family that we need to be really aware of. I think number one is abortion, and we've talked about abortion a lot. Um, I, I'm, I, I am shocked. I'm not talking about in our church, but I'm shocked at the Christian leaders in America that are saying, we've heard enough about abortion. Leave it alone. We're not going to be able to do anything about it. Um, one of them, it's nobody you would know, but one of the most admired voices that I know looked at me one time and said, why are you so consumed with this? There's nothing we can do to change it. 
And I, I looked at him and I said, well, even if you're right, I will not go stand before the Lord saying that I gave up trying. So we need to understand what abortion does to the American family. Number two, we need to understand what absenteeism does. We have, um, we have a plague of absent, especially fathers, and not only fathers and in some cases mothers that, that aren't in the home, but they may be in the home but are still detached. The hours they work, the, 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 the priorities of their life leave the children feeling left out. And I want to tell you, I believe, I can't give you a verse for this, but I believe the same evil spirits that drive abortion drive pornography. Both abortion and pornography take a human life and say it is nothing. In one case, it's an unborn child. In the other case, it's a woman or, or maybe a man that is now used as an object, used for someone else's uh, carnal satisfaction, and there is no thought that this is someone's daughter. This is someone's sister. It's, it is pornography. Pornography, like abortion, drives the idea that some people are nothing. Now, how do we get back home? I, I, I had some great statistics, and I took about a page and a half out because I realized on Wednesday night I'm preaching to the choir. I mean, I know that you already would say, yeah, we agree, Pastor, but what do we do about it? Um, let's, let's talk about a path home, and then let's look at family situations in the book of Acts, and we'll wrap it up and have Justin come and pray with us. Um, I'm so sorry for my sniffling. Uh, the path home, I think, is, is threefold, and each of these things could take 20 minutes to elaborate on, but I'll just give them very briefly, just a, a few moments for each one. Number one, we need to reclaim Scripture as the definer of family life. Um, loved ones, I, I'm about to say something that, that can sound very controversial. Um, I, I, my, my issue with the American family scene in America, I, I, I'm not nearly as upset over um, a gay or lesbian couple having the same rights as a married couple. I'm not really upset if we say if somebody is in a civil relationship like that, that they ought to have the rights to health care or whatever. That, that's not where my battle is. My concern is that we call that marriage that's my concern. Not, not that we're giving rights. I think everybody ought to have certain rights. But we don't have to distort the biblical view of marriage in order to do that. I, I think one of the things that the church has to learn, and, and, and please don't misunderstand me because we're seeing a lot of Christian leaders caving. I'm, I'm not caving and I'm not saying that um, lifestyle doesn't matter. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is this, we need to find our way back to the place where we can love people with whom we disagree. We need to stop writing off our children. We need to stop writing off uh, our neighbors. We need to stop writing off whatever. It, 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 don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm not okay with it. But I'm saying, I know this, if I can't love my neighbors, I'm never going to win my neighbors. 
So I think the church has got to do that. And, we, and, and I know every time I say something like this, people get upset and they say, well, pastor's caving on this. Good grief, no. I'm not caving. I'm just saying if we're going to win, we have to approach it from the perspective of love. Um, but I, I think sometimes we get upset at the wrong points. And we need to understand that as far as family goes, there is a clear definition in Scripture, and we need to hold to that. Whatever you want to do with other rights. Let me, let me move away from sexuality and give it to you on this perspective. Um, I am a Christian. I believe there, I mean, I hope that's not news to any of you. Um, I, I believe there is no way to heaven except through Jesus Christ. But I believe in America that a Muslim community ought to have the right to build a mosque just like a Christian community does. I don't want to deny Muslims their right. I think a Jewish community ought to be able to build a synagogue. I think if somebody worships, you know, crickets and green lizards, as Americans, they ought to have the right to freely express themselves and build a, a, a cricket chapel or whatever they want to build. But I, I, I don't concede that that's just another way to heaven. But I can honor them, I can respect them, I can love them while I'm presenting the light. I think that's what the, the church, we, because we've been a Christian nation, um, and, and I know that histor historians today are saying we've never been a Christian nation, but we were founded on the Judeo-Christian uh, ethic, and, and you have to rewrite history to deny that. Now, we've never done it perfectly, and we made some tragic mistakes that have marred our history and cost us hundreds of thousands of lives. I, I know that, but we have Christian roots and we have been so accustomed to a, a Christian climate, even, even if the people weren't Christians, we were accustomed to a Christian climate. That's why, you know, why couldn't you buy liquor in a store on Sunday before noon? because of the Christian blue laws that originated in England. I mean, even people that didn't believe in the gospel were affected by the gospel and they understood uh, the, the, the results of a gospel community. But what, one of the things that's gonna be the biggest challenge for us in the, year, in the days and years ahead is that we've got to realize, in my opinion, that we are in a post-Christian America and, and I believe that God can help us reclaim our heritage. And I believe that we can become a Christian nation again. But it won't be by hating people. And it won't be by wishing them harm. It will be by loving them into the kingdom. One of the things that brings tears to my eyes every time I think about it, and that's why I'm going to just be real brief so I don't start crying. But there was a time in England and Scotland uh, when the Salvation Army and other groups were, they pioneered street preaching. They would stand, I say pioneered it in, in, in the West at least, they would stand on the street corner and in those early days they were pelted with rocks, with, with uh, rotting vegetables. They were persecuted and some of them did not finish their sermon without blood being drawn. 
But what the rest of the church was doing is they would go to the people who were, who were harassing and throwing stuff and they would kneel and clean their shoes while they were abusing their brother or sister who was trying to speak. And it was that, said one Salvation Army historian, it was that that won the hearts of the multitudes, not as much as the sermon. I mean, uh, rather than the sermon. It was that act of love. Now, the sermon had its place, of course. But we need to reclaim uh, Scripture as the definer of family life. Number two, we need to reestablish church as the chief culture center for our families. Um, I pastored in a, in a little community, and um, it was the only place I've ever lived that we were able, and it was a goal. It took us months to do it. But we were able to say that we knocked on every single door in our town, every single door in our town without exception. We knocked on the door, uh, shared the gospel, or left a packet that explained the gospel and gave an invitation to our church. Now, before you get all excited about us visiting 3 million homes, the population was only about 18,000. You know, I don't know how many homes that translated to, but we got to every single residence. And, and I was so proud of the church for doing that, so thankful for their, for their vision. God gave us phenomenal growth. And um, I, I was also a t-ball coach. And um, uh, I, I did that for maybe two years. I quit the second year because some of our families started bringing their kids to be on my t-ball team. And I, I, I told one family, I said, listen, I have to put up with your behavior at church. I'm not going to put up with you yelling at me out here on the t-ball field. I quit, you know. Uh, so not everybody was as sanctified as I'd hoped they would be, probably me too. But we had a meeting and I said, um, they said, we're, our, our sports program is growing so much, we're going to have to have games on, uh, on Wednesday and Sunday mornings. And uh, I stood and I said, I'm, I'm asking you to not do this. I said, you know the history of our town, little town in West Florida. I said, you know the history of our town. This, this whole community is built on a military base and churches that sprang up over the past century. And I said, I'm asking you to please not have games on Wednesday night and Sunday morning because that will be in a direct competition with our churches and people are going to have to make a decision. Do I go to church or do I, do I let my kid play ball? And they said, Pastor, we understand. We appreciate all you're doing. You don't have to. You can get an assistant coach and you don't even have to be there because one of the rules was the coach had to be there, you know. And they said, you don't even have to come. We'll make an exception to the rule for you. I said, you don't understand. I said, it's not that you're inconveniencing me. It's that you're sending the wrong signal to the whole community. I said, these churches, and I named off several churches that were represented by people that I knew in the room. I said, they are what have built this community. And you are about to divide the congregation from what built, uh, I mean, the, the community, from what built this community. And, and I made, I thought, a pretty good case that we needed to reestablish church as the chief culture center for our families. I lost the battle. Um, they, they didn't listen to me. And, and uh, I, I, you know, I, that was 
probably the main reason that I ended up quitting coaching later. But I, I think, I think if I can say this without sounding like a bitter pastor, I think we have lost the idea of the importance of church attendance. I'm not talking about during COVID. I understand that. But um, there was a time when I was uh, a teenager and was, was first began my pursuit toward credential ministry. It was said that the average Assemblies of God church member was in church out of 52 Sundays a year, was in church, was in church an average of, I think it was 47 or 48 Sundays a year. Now, you know, somebody, you're going to be sick sometimes, you're going to have visits to grandma's, you know, you're going to, you're going to have vacation. But the average church member uh, missed four Sundays a year. By the time I came here to pastor, the, the national average said that the average church member misses 16 Sundays a year. That means in 1994, the average Assemblies of God church member missed four months of service a year. And the last I checked was right after the turn of the century, and it was up to like uh, 21 Sundays. So what I'm saying is, you know, I know there are situations, I know that, but I'm saying we've lost something. We've lost the idea of the church being the center of our families. And somehow, somehow, I think we need to reestablish the church as the chief culture center for our families. Um, we, we, uh, when I was, I was around, I was a kid when Royal Rangers was born. I, literally, I, I really was. It, was. it was in the 60s. I was in elementary school, and I was in the scouting program, Cub Scouts going into Boy Scouts. And um, my mom and dad sat me down, and they said, son, all of you, your, your brothers have been Boy Scouts, and you're, you're a Cub Scout getting ready to go into Boy Scouts. There is a new program at church, and you need to make up your mind which one you want to do. You're not going to be able to do both. But um, they laid out the pros and cons. And um, I remember my mom saying this. She said, I, I think our family has always done this, honey. She said, we've always put church at the center of everything we do. If you're asking my opinion, I would say, let's give Rangers a try. And I did. Because we operated from a mindset. Now, if you've got your kids in scouts, please don't go pull them out. That's not what I'm saying. But I grew up with the mindset of everything about our lives revolves around church. Um, and I know some churches that wasn't healthy. <laughs> some churches you don't want it as the center of your family. But the church has provided an anchor that I think the Christian community has lost. Now, it's just my opinion. It's on Wednesday night. So, you know, you can, you can say he's just tired on Wednesday night. But um, number three, I think we need to reclaim personal responsibility for the building and preserving of our families. We need to stop expecting Mike to raise our children. We need to stop expecting Bella to raise our children. I just walked over 
to um, rainbows and and the Impact Girls area, saw the Rangers in the gym. And man, I tell you what, I am so proud of what we do here. But all we can do here is to, is to supplement what you do at home. And I'm so proud of the Wednesday night crowd because a lot of people that are here on Wednesday night are here because you bring your children. And, and, and that's okay. I'm under no illusion you know, that you come to hear me. You come for your children and that's okay. And I, and I, just, get to, I just get you for a few minutes. You, I'm okay with that. But um, uh, I think that we need to understand that all God gives us is to enhance what should be done at home. Well, I'm, I'm just sounding so nitpicky. Let me go on and just point out the way family looks in the book of Acts. Um, number one, we have in Acts chapter um, 10, we have the household of Cornelius. Now look at the diversity of families. This man is a Roman. Um, uh, my youth pastor used to say that he was a musician because he was a member of the Italian band. Okay, never mind. Let's go on. But he was a military officer. And this is what the Bible says about his family. He was, not, he was a pursuer of God, and, and, but he was not even a full proselyte. He, he had not even turned to Judaism, but he was pursuing the God of Israel. And it says, they arrived in Caesarea the following day. This is talking about Peter and his group of, of believers. And it says, Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. Here's a man that's on the, on the fringe of being a believer. In fact, do you know that Cornelius wouldn't have even been allowed inside the synagogue? He would have to stay in the back. And our churches are based on the structure of synagogue. We would have, if we were a synagogue in the first century Israel, he would have to stay out in the foyer and could look in. And that's all he would be allowed to do. There was a section that the men could gather. There was a section the women could gather. And then there were the, the God-fearers or the God-seekers. That they, you talk about not having a good hospitality program. They had to stay outside of the main auditorium. And all they could do is look and listen. But when God moved on his heart... He knew that it was important enough. He called his whole family and his close friends together. So not every situation in the book of Acts was an easy thing for a family to navigate. Secondly, there's the home of Lydia. And from the text, we, we can assume, we don't know, but we can assume that we might be dealing with a single mom in this situation. It says one of them, one of the, the people that listened to Paul and believed, one of them was Lydia from Thyatira, a merchant of expensive purple cloth who worshiped God. As she listened to us, this is Luke writing, the Lord opened her heart and she accepted what Paul was saying. That is a message about Jesus being Messiah. She and her household were baptized and she asked us to be her guests. So what have we got? We've got a military officer that wasn't even welcome inside the facility of worship. We have a lady that was a businesswoman, 
the indication is that she was probably a single mom, but she still had the influence on her family that when she followed Jesus, they did too. Number three, we look at the home of the jailer of Philippi. This man was basically a prison warden. I mean, just think of him, just think of Boss Hogg, you know. He's just, he's just in charge. That's how I, no, that's not how I see him. I'm just kidding. But listen to the story. You know the story. It says, suddenly there was a massive earthquake. Now, Paul and Silas were in jail. They had been beaten. But at midnight, they were singing praises to God. They didn't let their ill treatment keep them from worshiping the Lord. The prison was shaken to its foundations. All the doors immediately flew open and the chains of every prisoner fell off. The jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open. He assumed the prisoners had escaped, so he drew his sword to kill himself. You've probably heard that, now this wasn't true in every place, but it was true of a Roman jail or a, a jail that was under the dominion of Rome or had Roman guards. If you let a prisoner escape, you suffered the fate that they, I mean, it was an incentive for the guards. But Paul shouted to him, stop, don't kill yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights and ran to the dungeon and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved along with everyone in your household. Now they weren't saying that if a father believes everybody's automatically saved. But they were saying that this invitation is for you and all of your family can come along too. And they shared the word of the Lord with him and with all who lived in his household. Okay. There's one other place I'd like to refer us to, and that is the, the home of Crispus. Now, what have we got? We've got a military officer that was used to traveling around from place to place. Uh, he was a man of authority, but was not welcome in the house of worship. We have a single mom that had to manage a business and take care of her household and all of the demands of that. We've got a prison warden that um, was used to the most uh, cynical lives and the most criminal lives. And all of a sudden his heart is touched by the Lord and it so impacts him that he is baptized and all of his family follows as well. And then the fourth example is the home of Crispus. Crispus was a ruler of the synagogue. Boy, I tell you, he wasn't just a member of the synagogue. He was a ruler of the synagogue. That, that meant that he had awesome responsibility. And for him to make a decision to accept Jesus as Messiah, he put himself and his whole family at risk. But listen to what the scripture says. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, and everyone in his household believed in the Lord. Many others in Corinth also heard Paul and became believers and were baptized. What I've tried to say tonight is um, I know the family is under attack and I know there are things going on in our country that can cause us to react with anger. But what we've got to do is to remember whatever you're dealing with in your family, whether it's an unbelieving spouse or whether it's wayward children or wayward parents, whatever it is you're dealing with, understand this, the Lord is more committed to your family than you are. And the Lord loves your family even more than you do. Um, <clears throat> it's, it's hard to fathom that. You know, you hold that little baby in your arms and to think that your love is nothing 
absolutely nothing compared to the love that God has for that child. It, we know it intellectually, but it's hard to, it's hard to wrap our, our arms around. And that's why it's one of the best things we can do is to trust the Lord with our children and to trust the Lord with our grandchildren. So what are, what are three life lessons? Um, very quickly, number one, this is a time for parents and especially fathers to take responsibility for their families. I know that I'm, I'm saying the most obvious thing I can say, but we are being bombarded with slogans like it takes a village. Well, a village can help, but I don't want my child raised by a village. I want to raise my children. And we're, we're fed a lot of garbage that makes us uh, inclined to believe that our children are property of the state. And that's not true. That's why we need to pray in, on the prayer list. That's why we're praying for, for reform in our schools and in the great institutions of America. Because um, in my opinion, and this, this is not a spiritual, thus saith the Lord, it's just my opinion. I think the government has overreached into our lives so much. And, and, and in some situations, it feels so good to get some help that we don't understand what's happened. So we need to, um, especially fathers, need to take responsibility for our families. Number two, we need to avoid new age lullabies. That's what I call them. I, you won't find that in your concordance. But I, I think we are, being, we are being lulled to sleep with a, this is for your good. Nobody knows what your children need better than, than the nanny state. And we need to, we need to realize that a government that functions the way it ought to can help us. See, I'm, 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 not, I, I'm, I'm not a libertarian. I don't think that there ought to be no influence of government in our lives. I just think government ought to do the right thing and not the wrong thing. And government ought to stop where the limits are and not go beyond the limits. And, and we've got to, you know what I said, we've got to, to win people by loving them. We've got to win our government back by being good citizens, not by being terrorists. Well, here's number three. Teach the skills, don't just tell the stories. Um, I think I tried to do that growing up, but if there's one thing, I, well, there's a couple of things. If I, if I had to raise my children over again, I think I would have spent more time teaching them how to live out what I taught them from the Bible. You know, not just this is what the Bible says, but this is how you do it. This is how you do it. Um, I, I mean, I don't think I failed with my children. My children all love the Lord. I'm thankful for that. But I, I, I don't think I realized when I was raising them how much society would change and how important it would be for us to teach our children skills and not just give them information. I want to recommend a book to you, and uh, Justin's going to come in just a minute to, uh, to lead us in prayer. <clears throat> um, the, the name of the book, um, I told somebody about this book the other day. Um, she was only 22. That's the name of the book. She was only 22. I told them she was only 16, and they couldn't find it. And then I realized that's an old Ringo Starr song. That's, that's not the name of the book. It was, it was, she was 22. She was only 22. 
Um, the author is James Alexander Stewart. Let me repeat that one more time for you. She was only 22 by James Alexander Stewart. It's not an easy book to find. Um, it's out there and you might have to search a little bit to find it. it. I don't know if you can get it at Amazon or not, but it's an old book. Um, it, it's, it's, it was written, oh, probably 100, 110 years ago. Um, by, by Pastor Stewart. It's the story of Helen Ewan. That's spelled E-W-A-N. Um, you might have heard, I've heard people pronounce it Ewan, but I think it's, I think it's Ewan is the cor correct pronunciation. Helen Ewan. Um, and she was a girl that had only been a Christian for eight years. She became a Christian when she was 14 years of age. And you say, well, what, what was so phenomenal about her story if, if she, you know, she died when she was 22. Um, it, was, it was tragic. They don't know what it was. Uh, they suspect they know what it was. They just called it a fever. She was young and vibrant, preparing to be a missionary to the Russian people of Eastern Europe. She got sick one day and before the day was out, she had deteriorated so grievously that she was dead tragic story. And I don't know, and, and, and um, James Stewart, Alexander Stewart, doesn't give you a formula. He can't identify it. He said, the only thing I can tell you is that there is no person that I've known in all my life, and he was a great Scottish pastor, wrote a lot of books. He said, I've never known anyone that was as totally devoted to the Lord as she was. He said, she was, he said, I knew her from the time she was a, a teenager till the day she died. She, he said, other than her mother and father, he said, my wife and I probably knew her better than anyone in, in the world. And he said, the only thing, he said, she would walk into a room and sinners would, would give their heart to the Lord. They would want prayer from her. She, she wasn't, uh, her ministry wasn't signs and wonders. It was just drawing people to the Lord. And every place she went, just by her presence being there, they, they, people just wanted to pray. They, they wanted to draw close to the Lord. The grave digger, when um, uh, Stuart records that when someone went to find her grave to pay respects, um, they, they um, uh, and it, he said, he said, thousands of people are buried here. And he said, I would have no idea where she was. And, he, and they described her. And the grave digger, she had been dead for months. The grave digger said, oh, I remember her. And he took them right to their grave. And they said, how do you remember her? He said, because I am a God-fearing man. And from the moment we picked up her casket, I was overwhelmed by the presence of God. He said, as we put her in the ground, he said, I wept because there was such an anointing on her dead body. He said, I wondered if it might not be the same as it was for Elisha, who a man was raised from the dead by being thrown on top of the bones of Elisha. He said, I've never experienced the presence of God in church or out of church like I did burying that young woman. And this is what I want to leave with you. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk to the whole church about this in, in, you know, in a few weeks, probably by this summer. 
there was such an anointing on her life. Now, she was not married. She had no children. She was a young girl that was going on the mission field, but there was such an anointing on her life. This kind of thing happened with regularity throughout the years. Um, a family of missionaries were gathered in a home in Scotland, um, the home of a Christian that had been influenced um, by her life, didn't know her, but had been influenced by her. And they had a picture of her on their mantelpiece. There's one picture of her so far as I know in existence. And that's what they had on their mantelpiece. And they said every time, uh, they, they found out later that this was a regular occurrence almost every time. But when they gathered for fellowship in that room, they said it was like all of heaven was calling you to pray. Like faith was rising up for the impossible. And the owner of the home said, this is what we found. He said, there is such an anointing on Helen's life that just having her picture on the mantelpiece years after she died, it draws people to the presence of God. It draws people. They want to pray. They want to seek the Lord. Now, I, I, I want to caution you. I know there's a, there's a trendy thing today that a lot of people do. You know, they, they go to the graves of saints to soak up their power. I don't think that's a smart thing to do. I understand that pure hearts can be behind it, but I just, I just, I just don't think that's a wise thing to do. That's not the kind of thing I'm talking about. And if God tells you to do it, that's between you and him. I mean, seriously, that's between you and him. Uh, I, I just, I don't think it's wisdom. But I tell you what I do believe. I, I know that I, I may not see all of my grandchildren. I may not see great-grandchildren. But this is what I want to present to the church. I want the church to pray for their children. Or if you don't have children, nieces and nephews. I want you to pray for your children so much that after you're long gone, if there's a picture of you on the mantle, that it draws the family to the presence of God. I'm going to tell the church that every parent, every couple, every grandma and grandpa in the building, you need to pick out your favorite picture of the two of you and frame it and put it in a box that says to be opened on my death. And after you're gone, get your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren to put that picture up on the mantle. And let's believe, God, that our prayers will be so influential for our children and our homes for generations that our prayers will outlive us by centuries. I really believe that. I'm, 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 I'm the kind of guy, I, 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 you know, I want to be there for everybody. I want to be there. I want, I, want every, I want every one of my descendants to know me. But I can't, I mean, I, I can't live for hundreds of years. But I tell you what the scripture says. He that doeth the will of God abides forever. It says of Abel, he being dead yet speaketh. And again, loved ones, you know, I, I'm not talking about spirit connections and I'm not talking about communicating with the dead, but I'm saying that I believe just as there was an anointing upon the dead bones of Elisha, I believe there can be an anointing on, on what we leave for our families.
And I call that hope. 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 Father, I know there are people here tonight, and I know I've kind of freaked some of them out, but I, I pray, I know there are people here tonight that they are so worried about their children. They are, they are so worried about their loved ones. They are so worried about what will happen after I'm gone. They, they don't think it likely that the ones that they're worried about are going to come home anytime soon. But Father, I'm asking tonight that you would fill us with hope. Fill us with hope. Help us to remember that in the midst of this onslaught against the family, help us to understand that God is causing seed to sprout. He's causing investments to pay off. Uh, Lord, I, I, I remember so many stories of people in my family that we were convinced had, would never be saved or might, maybe even had committed the unpardonable sin. But Lord, even on their deathbed, you saved them. You dealt with them in mercy. Father, there is always hope. There is always hope. I'm convinced there are people and loved ones that we will see in heaven. And right now, we don't even think they were saved. But the grace of God touched them right where they were. Right where they were. So I'm asking you to touch our loved ones. Help us to live in hope. Help us to not cave in to despair. Help us to not be, uh, come ineffectual because of the attack of the enemy on the family in our nation and all around the world. Father, I pray one more thing. If there's anyone here or that listens um, online that does not know you as Lord and Savior, Father, it, it could be you're bringing to their mind a praying mother. It, it could be that without their knowledge, a great, great, great grandfather prayed for God to touch his generations yet unborn. I believe, Father, that the prayers of those that have gone before us still bears fruit. And I'm asking you to help us come home. Help us come home. Help those hard cases to become trophies of victory and trophies of the Lord's grace. We ask you to give us hope for our families. In Jesus' name, amen.